This is Exchange of the Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. It's a tale of two data sets when it comes to gauging the recession risk for the U.S. economy. On the one hand, steady job numbers have the U.S. on a relatively surer footing than its developed market peers. On the other hand, oil prices and equity markets have fallen substantially to start 2016. Today, I'm joined by Jan Hatzius, Goldman Sachs Chief Economist, and Jeff Curry, Head of Commodity Research, to explore this apparent market economy disconnect. Jan, Jeff, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Good to be here. So Jan, U.S. unemployment's on the decline. Wages were up 2.5% last year. Lower gas prices are putting more money in the consumer's pockets. Yet equity and credit markets have fallen significantly to start 2016. So what's happening? What are the markets telling us about what's coming? Or are the markets just operating in their own world? I'd say two things. One is that I do think the markets are a little too pessimistic about the outlook for growth and a little too low on their outlook for inflation. So I think it's partly that we basically disagree with the views that are incorporated in the markets at this point, although that's softened a little bit over the last couple of weeks as markets have stabilized a bit. The other point, though, is that markets and economies are not exactly the same thing. The S&P 500, for example, is not the U.S. economy. And at the moment, I think the distinctions between markets and economies are particularly important for basically three reasons. One is that equity markets care about earnings and profits, and earnings and profits, we think, uh, may well underperform GDP over the next few years because the level, after outperforming very, very substantially, uh, profit margins are at a very high level, and we think they're probably going to go sideways to lower in, uh, in coming years as wage growth accelerates. That's number one. Number two, it's very important to distinguish between nominal dollars and real volumes. So if you look at, for example, the consumer retail companies care about nominal dollar revenue and same store sales growth, uh, and that has been pretty lackluster. But uh, what matters really for the macro economy, for real GDP growth, ultimately for employment, is the real numbers, the inflation adjusted numbers. Those have been a lot more robust. And then, then number three, the equity market and the credit market are probably more exposed to sort of problem areas in the economy and in the global economy than the U.S. economy as a whole. One example is greater exposure to China. China accounts for a larger share of S&P 500 revenues than for exports as a share of GDP. Another example is oil, where the equity and especially credit markets are more exposed negatively to lower oil prices than the economy as a whole. So I think those issues can often be important, and they're always good to keep in mind, but they're particularly important at the moment. So I do think that the markets are not entirely transmitting a negative signal about the economy, although that's also part of the story here. Jeff, a lot of people are blaming the falling equity markets on the decline in oil prices. Is it unusual to see such a distinct correlation between oil prices and the equity markets? And if not, why are we seeing it today? Well, the positive correlation between oil and the equity market is not unusual per se. It's unusual given where we are in the business cycle. And the reason why I say that is when you go into recession, you get positive correlation across all the assets, commodities and equities. The negative correlation typically happens in the expansionary phase 
where higher commodity prices lead to higher rates and weaker equity markets. So what is unusual about the current environment is we're closer to the middle of the cycle and we're seeing this positive correlation playing out. Why do we think it's happening? There's really three dynamics we think that are at play that separate this cycle from the past. One is the CapEx reduction was very large this time. Part of that had to do with the amount of leverage that was in the system. U.S. EMP companies were spending 150% of cash flow, very much like technology companies, something they hadn't done in the past. The second factor is we had a uptick in savings. Part of that was driven by the fact that when you had a drop in oil prices, it was a wealth transfer from relatively high spenders to relatively modest savers. Let I me mean, make the point how this differs in the past. Before, it was Texas billionaires and wealthy GCC countries in the Middle East who accumulated this wealth and then was a transfer to big spenders in Europe and the United States. This time around, it's no longer true. Post the Arab Spring of 2011, the Arab countries are now very large spenders as opposed to savers. The U.S. EMPs were very large spenders. Now let's look at the consumers, China and India, very large savers. Same thing um, in terms of even looking at the wealth transfer between U.S. producers and U.S. consumers. So you see an uptick in savings as opposed to an uptick in consumption, which makes it very different from the past. The third one, which I think is probably the most important of the three, was the strong correlation that you see between oil prices and the dollar. And there's real reasons for that correlation because you can think about a collapse in oil prices is a terms of trade shock to many of the emerging markets that produce commodities. As a result, the currencies weaken, the stronger U.S. dollar slows down growth in the manufacturing sector in the U.S., but more importantly, I think this was at play in the most recent environment, is because you have the fix of the RMB to the dollar, lower oil prices stresses that fix. And every time you have a devaluation, it's a negative shock to the U.S. S&P. So I would say of those three, I really like to think that the correlation between the dollar and oil is probably the bigger driver, because at least in the last several days, it seems to be the main dynamic. Now, you've been bearish on oil for a long time now because of oversupply. Are we starting to see a little bit of a breakdown in demand as well now? Demand is not robust, but it's not collapsing. I like to use the term benign right now. It's not the driver of the market in either direction. And in terms of thinking about the weakness in demand, the core weakness demands coming out of the big oil producers like the Middle East, as well as places like Russia or other commodity producers in Latin America. When you look at developed market demand, China and India, and India in particular is doing relatively well, there's no indication this is a demand-driven story. We still you know, stick to our view that this is really a supply-driven dynamic. It's not unique to the oil market. It's happening in the metals and mining sector and across the commodity space. There's some folks who are out there saying they see a lot of similarities between what's going on in oil markets today and what happened in housing in 08. And the theory goes something like this, as more and more energy companies go into default, bank lending will have to pull back even to other areas of the economy, putting downward pressure on economic growth. How realistic is that scenario? I think the best way to make the point that this is not a realistic scenario is let's just look at the comparison. Let's start with the magnitude of the bank loans. The housing mortgages that were in 2006 were roughly $3 trillion, one-third of all bank loans. To put it in perspective, the loans to the oil and gas sector are $200 billion. In other words, 
the size of the mortgage market was 15 times the size of what is happening in the energy, oil, and gas space. The other issue is that when you look at the transparency, and I think this is, it goes a, a long ways in making the stark difference, is because the mortgages were securitized and sold out, they're when they're very relatively small, there wasn't a lot of transparencies on the credit ratings and the type of risk that you were that investors were taking. Here, these are very large billion dollar type of loans and very transparent. The closest they've come to securitization is syndication out of the banks. Uh, and so you're looking at a small magnitude with a very high level of transparency relative to the lack of transparencies in the very large uh, size of the mortgages in 2006. So I don't think the comparison is appropriate in the current environment. And I guess the one thing to add on banks is that banks are just much better capitalized than they were back in 2007, 2008. So it's not only that there's much less exposure to energy than there is to mortgages, but also that uh, the banks, the banks are, are, better shaped are, to withstand are just losses. in a very, very different place right. now. Right. So, Jan, you said in January that you thought that the negative impact of falling commodity prices on producers would largely offset the positive effects for consumers. Why is that the case? Have, as we've achieved energy independence or a little bit more energy dependence as a country, have we become more energy dependent in the economy? I think less so. It used to be that uh, declining oil prices were a significant economic positive for the U.S. because the U.S. was a large-scale net importer of oil and the positive impact on the consumer far outweighed the negative impact on oil production. And that has all changed. Now the U.S. is only a much smaller net importer of oil. And by our estimates, the positives and the negatives roughly offset one another as far as real growth is concerned. And we have seen a pickup in real consumer spending. The nominal retail sales numbers don't necessarily look so great. But that's partly because it's very important to adjust for inflation. And if you look at the real numbers, or you just look at the level of auto sales, for example, clearly we've seen a significant pickup in consumer spending, and that is offsetting the negatives in CapEx and production in the energy industry. Oh, it's also worth adding that if you add in natural gas as well as coal, which the U.S. is a net exporter of, the U.S. gets pretty close to being energy independent. And given the fact that you have the correlation between oil and gas and oil and coal prices, um, really makes the U.S. almost an independent island from the rest of the world. Right. Jan, let's talk about Fed policy for a minute. The Fed hiked rates in December for the first time in almost a decade and has signaled more rate hikes to come. What are your expectations for the Fed for the rest of this year, and how big a role do you think tighter money has played in the volatility we've seen to start 2016? I don't think it's been the major factor. I mean, you would expect, of course, somewhat more volatility being induced when the Fed starts to exit. I don't think that a uh, 25 basis point rate hike with rates still so low is something that was likely a key driver of the volatility. I think Especially more, when it was so well telegraphed. It was yeah. very, very well telegraphed. It wasn't a surprise to anybody when it actually occurred. I think concerns around China, for example, play a more important role than the rate hike. Our expectation is that we're still on course for gradual monetary policy normalization. We don't expect a hike at the March meeting, but we do think that from June onwards, we will see additional hikes. Uh, again, under our forecast that the economy continues to grow at a pace that's sufficient to create jobs that pushes down the unemployment rate further, pushes down labor market slack further, ultimately 
results in further acceleration in wage growth, some normalization in core inflation. All, all of this, of course, is, we need to see that for the Fed to continue to go. If we were, were not to see that, then they'd be, uh, I think, very data dependent and would say, we can take an extended break and see what happens to the economy. There's no preset course here, obviously. So the Fed seems to be almost alone in uh, entering a tightening cycle when you look around the world. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, what do you make of what Bank of Japan has done recently in actually moving towards negative rates? And what do you think the outcome's likely to be there? I mean, we've seen uh, a move towards negative rates for some time. In, in Europe, we're already pretty deeply in negative territory in, in some places. It was a surprise uh, and a bit of a turnaround for the Bank of Japan to move in that direction as well, because in the, in the past they had signaled that they had less appetite to go to negative rates. I mean, our broad view is that negative rates, if you can go to significantly negative rates, and you know, in Switzerland we are pretty deeply in negative territory now, uh, minus 75 basis points, that should mean we have an additional tool to combat economic weakness with interest rates already at the, you know, what we used to call the zero lower bound, which uh, has now been renamed <laughs> the effective lower bound to allow for potentially lower levels there. So our basic view is that it is an additional tool. It probably is a bit more realistic and effective than we thought. We don't have that much experience with it yet. Of course, the initial market reaction to what the Bank of Japan did was pretty negative. So at least initially, the BOJ did not achieve its goal of the easing financial conditions. Financial conditions actually tightened. tightened yeah. So I think it's still at a very early stage, and, and we're, we're going to gain a lot more experience with all of this. But our general view, and I think that of most central bankers, is that if you are able to go into negative territory, then in principle that gives you, you know, in addition to the belt of QE, it also gives you a pair of suspenders potentially for uh, still providing more support. Larry Summers has talked a lot about secular stagnation, and he says that's the most likely explanation for continued sluggish growth despite this move towards lower and lower rates. As more and more economists, including yourself, lower your growth targets year after year, how long do you think it'll be until you admit that Larry's right? Well, I think there's no question that uh, potential growth and trend growth is much weaker than I think almost any economist would have said five or 10 years ago. And to me, that is the big surprise of the last five years, just how little GDP growth in the statistics that the Commerce Department publishes, how little GDP growth we need to lower the unemployment rate. That's a big surprise. That to me though, would not necessarily be something that uh, I would call secular stagnation. The term secular stagnation means different things to different people. But for me, the best definition is a situation where you are basically unable to get to a full employment situation, where you're unable to get back to normal utilization of labor and other resources in the economy. And on that, actually, I don't see much evidence for that, because for that, I would really look much more at what's been going on in the labor market. And we've seen a huge labor market improvement, not only in the United States, but uh, really across the developed markets, over the last five years, the unemployment rate in the G7 economies has fallen by more than in any other five-year period on record. So if you look just at that un unemployment rate number, you would say there's no sign of stagnation here. There was a very deep recession from 2007 through 2009, 2010. Uh, in terms of the labor market, but then also actually quite a rapid recovery. And we are moving towards full employment. And eventually, that, I think that's also going to mean 
somewhat higher inflation. I think we're starting to see the first signs of that. Stronger wage growth and ultimately also a normalization of short-term interest rates. Not back to the sort of levels that we were at in the 1980s or, or 1990s. I do think the equilibrium short-term interest rate is lower than, uh, than it was, but I think significantly above where we are at the moment. Jeff, Goldman Sachs research is predicting a, a 5% decline in global corporate capex this year. What does that mean for industries that are heavily reliant on capex, and how much of that is just driven by the energy industry? Obviously, energy and commodities more broadly represent the core of that decline. I want to answer it first from what it means within the commodity space and then more broadly. But in terms of thinking about the commodity space, the bottom line is you get more for less right now. And you can see that even by looking at this quarter's company's reports during the earnings season. They have dropped CapEx 20% below expectations, but production is coming in almost on target, which is just it tells you quarter by quarter they're just getting far more efficient. And there are several factors at play there. One is they're taking a lot of the fat out of the system. Um, you figure you had over a decade of rising commodity prices, and as a result, you just got cushions throughout the entire supply chain. Now you're taking that out, which obviously has um, a broader you know, economic impact. The other factor has to do with the dollar. As the dollar weakened over the course of the last decade, that drove up the cost of producing all sorts of commodities, even here in the United States. Because um, a lot of, you know, like the fracking pump, or let's say copper, 40% of the cost of producing copper is labor from in uh, Chile, which is the Chilean peso. So the fact that we've had a huge appreciation in the dollar has also helped drive these costs down. Then the third factor is efficiency and productivity gains. And I have a saying, don't ever bet against an engineer. Give them enough time and money, they will solve the problem. And the engineers have been dazzling over the course of the last two years in terms of what they've been able to achieve. So within the industry, it's a very good thing because they're just getting a lot more for a lot less capital. But turning to the broader spillovers to the other industries, I'd like to say commodities is very capital dense, meaning it has a high capital density. It doesn't spread out that much. You know, I'd like to point out, you know, you look at the size of some of these projects like Gorgon in Australia, you know, these are $60 billion projects with very specialized technologies and enormous infrastructure associated with them. And so when you look at the spillovers to, you know, the broader economy, thus far, you know, even looking at, as Jan and I were looking at the labor recently, um, it's relatively limited. So and I think it really has to do with the capital density as opposed to ag intensity. Jan, any thoughts on the decline in CapEx and what it means for the economy more broadly? Well, I think there's energy CapEx and there's everything else. On energy CapEx, clearly we've seen a, a huge decline, and that decline is still ongoing. It will probably be slower in 2016 than in 2015, but that's mainly because we're much closer to zero. The rest of the capital spending overall numbers, they haven't done anything particularly different. Growth is a little slower there, but not dramatically. We're probably still in a positive growth environment. And we have not seen major spillovers from CapEx into other areas of the economy. We haven't seen, as Jeff just noted, big spillovers into employment. We haven't seen very big spillovers into the broader manufacturing sector. Manufacturing clearly is weaker, but we think that's probably more a dollar issue than an energy spillovers issue. Uh, and even in terms of CapEx, it's been reasonably limited, I would say. So you both talked about China. How big is the impact of China's slowdown 
whatever the size of it, to the broader economic outlook. Is China playing more of a psychological role in the markets currently than a, than a real economy role? Well, I think it depends on where you are. If you look at you know, economies that are either geographically closer to China or just export a lot to China or very Australia sensitive. is a factor. Yeah, of yeah. course. And yeah. uh, Taiwan, Korea, yeah. Australia, you know, Brazil, there are definitely places that are very, very directly impacted. If you look, though, at the United States or most of Western Europe, maybe with a partial exception of Germany, the exposures are just quite small. You take you know, the US, the UK, France, Italy, the exports to China from each of these economies account for only around 1% of, uh, of GDP. So you'd really have to get a huge downturn in China, far worse than what we think is, uh, is a realistic scenario to have a, um, you know, a major economic issue on, on, on your hands. Uh, beyond that, I think it's financial spillovers, you know, risk premia, the psychological effects that, uh, that you noted. Of course, those can be bigger. If people convince themselves that there is going to be a really big problem, then that will have some economic repercussions. So it's important, I think, to watch financial conditions, of course. That's always uh, important for economies and ultimately for markets and economic policy. But uh, we don't think that the direct spillovers really are very big. What happened in the commodity space, Jeff? The impact's been pretty broad-based. Are there any holdouts, any, any commodities that are escaping the, the Actually, curse of trying to slow down? There's quite a few that have escaped. And I think to see this, it's important to classify commodities into two buckets. The first bucket being what we call CapEx commodities, commodities you use to build infrastructure with, commodities like iron ore, coking coal, steel, cement. In the other bucket, we use the term OPEX commodities, commodities you use to operate the economy with. This includes oil, gas, aluminum, nickel. Um, another way to say it, you build the buildings with CapEx commodities and you heat and cool them with the OPEX commodities. And what we see is sharp contractions in the CapEx commodities and sharp expansions in the OPEX commodities. This is consistent with that rotation away from a manufacturing heavy industry-based economy towards a consumer-driven economy. I'll give you some numbers. You look at you know, steel, iron ore demand you know, contracting at 5-6% year-over-year. Jet fuel, gasoline demand grew last year somewhere around 12% year-over-year. Coffee demand is between 7 and 10% year-over-year growth. Uh, so this rotation is real and is being supported by what we see in the commodity space. So Jan, stepping back a little bit, what are the risks to your uh, relatively benign view of economic growth this year? Well, Jeff wrote a piece recently quoting uh, FDR, nothing to fear but fear itself. I think that's an important one. Of course, if we persuade ourselves and the markets persuade ourselves that we have a really big Animal spirits problem, move against there will us. Be, yeah. There will be economic repercussions. So it's important to track financial conditions as kind of one gauge of that. Beyond that, I think in terms of the economy in the U.S., in you know, Western Europe, in the developed market economies, we generally think that the downside risks are relatively limited. We went through a big crisis. We did see a big deleveraging in, uh, in many places. So we just don't think that we're as vulnerable as we've been at other points in the past. In terms of risks, of course, if you look at the EM economies, uh, there are risks in, uh, in China, um, and it's perhaps not as much the, the spillovers out of China but just the Chinese economy itself is still seeing very rapid credit growth, a big gap between credit growth and nominal GDP growth. So there is the question of how that's ultimately going to resolve itself. 
and that does create downside risks. We do think that uh, the slowdown there is ongoing. And there are other places in the, in the emerging worlds that are, of course, very troubled, Brazil being a good example. And then finally, I guess I'd say the, the politics. I mean, the politics all, often looks risky, but it probably looks a little more risky now than it has. We're in the U.S. presidential election season. We're in the uh, noisy very, part very of the unclear. cycle. The noise yeah. is enormous. And yeah. if you look at Europe, there is a lot of noise in a lot of different places. There is the British referendum in June. There's the German migrant crisis, there's uh, potential Catalonia secession, there's the National Front in, uh, in France. So each of the big countries has its own set of risks. Uh, so there are certainly plenty of risks out there, but I think the imbalances in the economy that we usually spend a large share of our time on, they don't look so bad in the developed economies at least. And how about the risk, Jeff, on the commodity outlook? Well, there's two, economic and geopolitical. Let's start with the economic risk. Ironically, it's a recession in the U.S. Why? Because it would force the Fed to backtrack on the policies that have gotten us this far. And the reason why that would be supportive to oil prices and commodity prices going you know, back, you know, back in time is a big driver of the high oil prices we saw over the last decade was the weak dollar. In fact, I like to point, always ask this, does anybody remember where the dollar was trading the day we hit $147 oil? It's trading against the euro, 1.61, weakest um, dollar ever recorded in um, U.S. history. So the two are very much tied to one another. So I view that as being one of the larger risks to the upside. Geopolitically, that's what people are really banking on. If something happens geopolitically, you take a lot of supply out of the market. But I like to say geopolitical risks have never been higher but oil at risk has never been lower. One of the reasons why, everything's already offline. Iran is struggling to come back online. Libya is off. Nigeria is taking large hits. Venezuela is struggling at this point in time. But bringing this back to the question about whether or not OPEC will make a decision to cut production to make sure up prices, I think it really goes to the heart of what we call the new oil order. And that's the technological shift that was created by shale. In other words, the technology has created a fast cycle production that reduces the time to build, meaning the time between when you commit capital and when you get production. Historically, if OPEC saw big companies cut CapEx, they knew they had a green light to cut their production, let prices rise, because it would take four years to bring on new supply. That time to build has been collapsed from four years down to 80 days. Yeah. And it takes now. months, yeah. and yeah. it takes 60 days to get Saudi oil to the U.S. So shale barrel and Saudi barrel are almost equivalent right now. So the whole idea of managing a cartel under the current technology is a moot point, barring a massive uh, reduction in demand where you do no longer need to have the shale production. So you know, in terms of looking at geopolitical risk, it's very difficult to concoct a story to get a lot more upside from here. Let's wrap it up by talking about what surprised you most. It's been an eventful year, but what has been the biggest surprise for each of you this year? Jeff, you want to start? Okay. The lack of a supply response and a lack of shift in behavior, even from many of the emerging markets. And we are now 18 months into this bear market. Historically, let's say it was 1986 in the U.S., you would have already seen a collapse in U.S. oil production. It's still hanging in there, and it's hanging in everywhere in the world. Why is that the case? I would argue it's a lot of the risk-sharing mechanisms that have been put in place over the course of the last decade. 
You got to remember, a place like Russia did not have a free float currency as far, far back as 2009. So a lot of the currencies that sit in many of these oil producers are new. Before they had pegs. And when they had a peg and well, the, when the ruble can go to 70, exactly, you can get your buffers, cost down pretty quickly. Yeah. Buffers a lot. And mm -hmm. then you look at the oil companies themselves. They have very deep and liquid equity and capital markets. So we own a piece of that risk. Or you look at the commodity markets. Again, deep liquid commodity markets allow to lay off risk capital. So the net of this is that we all own a little bit of the risk of what's happening in the commodity space as opposed to one producer of one country. And as a result, that's led to a lag in any real shift in behavior. Yeah. Jan, surprises so far this year? I mean, I'm surprised how little Fed tightening the, the, the bond market's discounting. But what surprises me perhaps even more is just how low break-even inflation in the bond market is at the moment. I mean, the market's basically saying CPI inflation in the U.S. for the next 10 years is one and a quarter percent, and that's at least a percentage point below the Fed's mandate. Uh, the Fed's looking for 2% for the PCE index, and typically CPI is higher than PCE by at least a quarter point. So that's a really big statement at some very basic level about how much the Fed is going to miss its inflation mandate on the downside, and I think it's wrong. Jan, Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Stewart. We hope you'll join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on February 23rd, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.